This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This is the second of our five-part AI Futures series on generative AI and human reward systems. How can AI systems get us hooked? And we have the perfect man for the job for this particular episode. The author of the book called Hooked is Nir Eyal. Nir's book Hooked is seen as sort of the Silicon Valley manual for building habit-forming digital products. He has a newest book called Indistractable, which is about untangling our attention from all the digital systems that try to command our attention. Nir graduated with an MBA from Stanford in 2008. He was a lecturer there for some time. And today, in addition to his writing and speaking, he's an active angel investor. Nir speaks with us today around how VR and generative AI might level up the amount of immersion and potentially the amount of hooking and habit forming that products might create. But he also makes some compelling arguments as to why businesses might not want to make products so hooking that they actually have a detrimental effect on their users' well-being or productivity, why it might even be in the self-interest of companies to not rob us of our sleep or rob us of our productive capacity. In addition to that, he shares some insights as to where governments might need to step in. What are some of the areas where policy might be a lever to use in order to prevent people from getting sucked into virtual worlds? If you want to see some of Nir's quotes from this interview in context with our broader research interviewing experts at OpenAI, Microsoft, and others, go to emerge.com slash reward. That's E-M-E-R-J dot com slash reward. You can see our full article there, including multiple infographics around some of our research and perspective on where these virtual technologies might take us and some of the pitfalls and opportunities of immersive generative AI experiences. We're grateful to have Nier's perspective in that article. Again, it's emerj.com slash reward. Without further ado, let's dive into this episode with Nier as to why sticky future digital products might even make us happier and more productive some interesting perspectives, and it's all worth unpacking. Without further ado, let's fly right in. So, Nir, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dan. Great to be here. Yeah, good to be able to catch up, following your work for quite some time, and you've clearly been following the cutting-edge tech space for quite some time, and all of its sort of fascinating permutations and, and addictive qualities over the years. When you look forward five to 10 years, you know, even since the, the time you wrote your first book there, TikTok has emerged, generative AI has started to emerge, VR is coming onto the, the roadmap. When you think about how the human experience is going to be different in a technologically immersed way, what do you think is compelling and likely in that future? So I, I really look at how we spend our time and attention. So both my books, so Hooked was about how to build habit-forming products to help people build healthy habits in their lives. And Indistractable, my second book, was about how to break those unhealthy habits. Now, they're not a negation, right? Some people look at it and they say, oh, it's hooked and unhooked. No, 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 no. I think we can have our cake and eat it too, that we can actually learn how to use technology to improve people's lives through healthy habits facilitated through technology. But we as consumers of this technology also need to make sure that we use the technology and the technology doesn't use us. And as far as I can see, it's going to be largely up to the user. I think there are some situations that companies have special responsibilities, that governments need to step in, but by and large, those are limited. You know, I would exclude those two situations where, for example, children, I think children need special protection. I think people who have a pathological addiction need special protections. But I think, you know, if you're if you're an adult, <laughs> it's going to be up to you that you're, you're, you're going to have to learn how to control your attention. And there's going to be a real bifurcation, I think, 
between people who let their time and attention, their lives be controlled by others and people who say, no, I decide how I will control my time and attention because I am indistractable because, you know, the world is becoming an increasingly distracting place. If you think the world is distracting now, just, just wait. <laughs> it's only going to become more potentially distracting, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. We hear a lot of tech critics talking about how, you know, social media is melting our brains and there's too many frivolous video games or whatever. And I kind of take issue with that, with that line of thinking, because the fact that we have so many amazing ways to spend our time, that's not necessarily a problem. That's progress. Right, we're already going to complain to Netflix and say, "Hey, stop making so many interesting shows. I want to watch them a lot." Or Apple, stop making your devices so user friendly. I find that I want to use it. I mean, that's ridiculous. The point of these products is to be engaging. That's why we use them, and it's such a luxury that we live for the first time in history, where we have so much leisure time. You know, the average American spends five hours a day still now watching television. Wow, <laughs> television! Like we're—that's like nineteen fifty stuff going on. According to Nielsen, right? Okay, so tell, okay. tell me why watching the boob tube, right? Watching more Fox News or whatever else you might be watching. Why is that somehow morally superior than going on social media or playing video games? There's no difference. Anything you want to do with your time and attention is fine as long as you're the one deciding that you want to do it. So I, I really want to empower people. I think the name of the game here is agency. How can we make sure that we use these tools mindfully? Got it. So I'm going to try to loop back to the original question here. So where's the future taking us? So I, I, maybe I'll get a little bit more specific with us. So I'm, I'm certainly not going to argue with you on the personal responsibility front. I think we're going to have people probably from every possible political permutation. I tend to lean in your direction. I tend to think at the end of the day, there's going to be a jungle of tech and you ought to buckle up and sort of make the world what you want to make it for yourself. And, and that tends to be my philosophy. Yeah. And but for your kids. Totally. I should, yeah. I should emphasize, make sure we teach our kids how to do this because it's going to be even more important for their generation. Man, you're telling me kids that are this far from an iPad when they're you know six months old, all the way up until they're four, it's going to be a wild yeah. world for them. Yeah. So well, let me dive right. into some particulars and we'll start to untangle some of the things you, you start to, to move around. One of them is, you know, you mentioned sort of, you think the world is full of distractions now. And, and on some level, to your point, it's part of progress. If you and I were smelting iron and, you know, cutting wheat all day, you know, we wouldn't exactly have the time to be distracted by As Joe many Rogan. people do today. Yeah, exactly. Right? So exactly. Like exactly. World problem to oh, even think about, one, oh my gosh, I'm so distracted. <laughs> 100%. It is, it is a pinnacle signal that we are no longer really dealing with those, those core issues of survival. But with that said, you'd mentioned, hey, in the future, that could be amplified in many regards because there's going to be so many other options. Do you foresee more, let's say, virtual and immersive experiences? So already we're seeing kind of meetings being potentially moved there. It's very bungly today, but I'm sure social media was pretty bungly a couple of years back as well. Do you foresee more virtual immersion? And do you see any of that replacing sort of some elements of physical connection, maybe not others? Interested in some of your particulars in terms of where you see things headed from a tech standpoint and an adoption standpoint? Yeah, it's going to be the same, but more. And what do I mean by that? That technology doesn't tend to extinguish the past technology. You know, the, the fork was invented uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years after the chopsticks, but we use both, right? We use chopsticks for when they're appropriate and we use forks when they're appropriate. So these tools tend to remain. So I don't, you know, I, I don't see a world where people, you know, plug into the matrix and they never leave. That's very far away, if if ever. What I do think is going to happen is that we're going to have greater what I call contingency. And contingency is this concept that I came up with where 
if you think about the contingent relationship between a mother and a child, that when a mother breastfeeds her baby, that that baby as reaction with the mother lets milk down and then there's this contingent relationship where the mother produces more milk as the baby needs more milk, we will see this type of relationship with our technology as well. And this happens mostly in the investment phase of my hook model. We can talk about the hook model in a minute, but essentially it's this four part model where the fourth step is what's called the investment phase. And when I first wrote the book Hook, this was back in 2014, and there was very elementary ways to get users to invest in the product, data, content, reputation, skill acquisition. That's the part of the hook model that we are going to see blow up, right? Because what's going to happen is that the amount of contingency that companies will be able to deliver in real time, meaning consumers will change the product and the product will change the consumer, just like that mother and child relationship, will happen much faster. So products will be customized as we see generative AI and, and generative technology. You're going to see these, these products customized to your tastes and preferences for a market size of one, right? Every product will be customized just for that user. This is really strong. I have a couple quick ideas on this and then we are going to move into the hooking and kind of habit forming elements of these products. But I'll drop a couple things on the table based on what you just mentioned here. One of them was you had mentioned that, you know, this idea of the audience of one, the way I sometimes think about it is if I plot my screen time in an average day over the last 10 years, it's probably the same. It's like 16 hours or something, you know, maybe on the weekend it's eight, you know, it's, it's working and then it's occasionally doing stuff that's not working. But however, if I plot percent screen time conjured in front of my face by machine learning, that graph doesn't have a different shape to it. And my guess is, my guess is that shape you know, isn't going to curl down, it's, it's going to curl up pretty high. It sounds like that's your, your core supposition here is that more and more of what we do, tell me if I'm wrong here, productivity side, education side, entertainment side, will be this reciprocal contingent relationship you're articulating. Exactly. More importantly, this will be facilitated by the fact that technology will begin to learn your preferences over time. So right now we can do this in a very basic way, right? If you go on TikTok and you watch a lot of videos with puppies, you're going to see more videos of puppies. But imagine what that implication would be in SaaS software, in educational software and health software, where they remember your, that, that software remembers your entire past history, just like TikTok would remember your preference for puppies, as opposed to right now, every time you use a SaaS tool, every time you use a healthcare product, there's no memory there to customize the product for your specific preferences. Well, that's about to change. Huh. Yes. And the idea of that's about to change, you know, some people can imagine this for entertainment, because they see it already, right? Netflix, you don't need an imagination. E-commerce, you don't need an imagination. Just go on Amazon. And there's there's a bunch of other examples of somewhat similar things. When it comes to the productivity side of the house, so our work tools, it does feel as though that's been a slower experience. We have a lot of hypotheses here as to why that is. If we know that we're optimizing for screen time, we can just do that the same for everybody. But if you are a salesperson selling to this particular kind of account with this kind of, if your needs are a little bit different. We can't necessarily optimize for the same thing. How does this get into our work tools, Neil? Where do you see this happening? And, yeah. you know, I've got a CRM, I've got a call center application. Where do you see this starting to float in? Yeah, so I think this is something that I've been writing about. Funny enough, I pulled up an article I wrote in 2015 where I said that the future was going to be chat. 
there was many different names for it, but we used to call it conversational AI or a conversational interface. And I think that's going to be the format that we're going to see in the enterprise where you'll wake up in the morning and instead of today, what you have to do is check a dashboard, right? Think about Google Analytics or most enterprise software. Okay, I got to log in, I got to look at this dashboard and then I have to interpret what this dashboard means. Am I spending my marketing budget correctly? What do the trends look like? You know, the, I, have to, I have to think about what to do next. What's going to change is that, that generative AI or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, there's a, a fuzzy line between the two, but essentially the software will tell you, here's what this means. Here's the next recommended step based on the data we collected. That's what's going to change. So there's going to be a much more direct line between the information that's available and how to act upon that information. The intelligence will be digested for you. Got it. Okay. And, and so there will be maybe prompts to action, maybe explanations as to why, based on what the particular needs are of that individual user. Again, that experience of one that you mentioned before. And experiments, future experiments to run, by the way. So imagine, you know, you wake up and you check your marketing automation software and the software doesn't just show you a bunch of charts and a dashboard like they do today. It says, hey, we ran this experiment last night. Here are three more experiments I'd recommend. Here's the prompts. Here's the yeah. image. Here's the specifications you should change. Push one button and we'll run it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really excited to see where that goes in terms of, I mean, marketing is one example, but we could probably bring up exactly, hopefully our listeners can imagine the same thing in a hundred different industries and different departments. Final thing I'll touch on before we get into the sort of habit forming element, and I, I want to do a little bit of pinging around this. You had mentioned, hey, I don't really see people going into the matrix and sort of not leaving, you know, plugging into some VR thing and, you know, 20, 30 years from now and sort of living in there and some dystopian sense. I'm also a little bit skeptical of calling that inherently a dystopia because I don't know. I'm pretty sure, Nir, actually, if you and I were to go back 80 years and just talk to your grandparents when they were, whatever, 30, and just say, hey, you're going to have a grandson. His name is Nir. And he's the, I'm going to break down the percent of his time for you just in a given day. Here's what he's going to He's going to look at a screen and he's going to look at this screen. He's going to look at this screen. He's gonna talk. They would say he is a monster and he lives in hell. And my guess is near the future will look like monsters living in hell to you and me. So we're like mm. afraid of it because mm. we're, because we're, because we're fearful. But to be frank, I'm not, I'm not really all that keen to calling that a dystopia. However, some people think it is, but whether it's a dystopia or not, there are some people that really don't think that kind of immersion is going to become the norm and others who do. You seem to be in the, Hey, doesn't seem realistic camp. Talk a little bit about why you feel that way. What are the factors that you think are going to counter that kind of sucking in? of the, the virtual space. Let's go back to this relationship I talked about earlier around contingency and, and how I think the best analog offline is the mother-child relationship. I, I'm sure you've heard of the author Yuval Harari who talks, he wrote the book Sapiens and he talks about in a very dystopian way how, oh, technology is gonna know you better than you know yourself, better than your mother knows you. And just like your mother told you what to do, technology will tell you what to do. And he makes this seem as if it's this inevitable byproduct where we will be bossed around by these smart technologies. And of course, we know what happens in the real world when our moms tell us what to do. What happens? Do we do everything our parents tell us I, to do? I think, of course not. What do we do? We, to, to defend him, it's a very bad, if you want it to be compelling, it's a very bad analogy. But I understand what, you, right? what you're saying. What you're saying is if we know something is trying to influence us, we might rebel against it. Right. When we're children, you know, we take our parents' advice because they're gods and we listen to everything they say. And right now, you know, that's it. You could see a, a point in time where you think, oh, my God, technology is, is a god. And maybe someday technology will get so smart for certain things that we let it have 
have our have this final say. I doubt that though, because you know what what there's a psychological phenomenon in all human beings called reactance. And reactance is this tendency that we have that when we are told what to do, when our agency is limited, we rebel. And so this is what happens when your boss micromanages you, right? Your boss tells you what to do. Well, that's intelligence, right? Your boss probably does know better than you do, but the fact that they're micromanaging you, even if they're right, makes you rebel. When your mother tells you, put on a coat, it's cold outside. You say, don't tell me what to do. I'm a grown man, <laughs> right? Like, that's reactance. And there is no doubt in my mind, we will have the same exact reaction to technology because it's already happening. The fact that we had this conversation and we have this dystopian ideal of, you know, what happens when technology tells us what to do, we're going to do the same thing we've always done. If you think about the reason I said it's going to be the same but faster, the, the same but more, is because what humans have always done in the face of technological revolutions is two things. They have adapted and adopted. Adapted and adopted. What does that mean? They adopt new norms, new ways of being to protect from antisocial behaviors and destructive behaviors. So, you know, I remember when my, in the 1980s, so I was born in the 70s, but I remember the 1980s. And I remember in the mid 80s, when people came to, when you, when you came to anyone's house or anyone came to your house, they just lit up a cigarette. It wasn't even a question. Every household, I didn't have any friends. And ask, I know people who were born after the 1980s think this is crazy, but no American household didn't have ashtrays in the living room. This was what everybody did. And if a person came over, they just lit up a cigarette without asking. And I remember when my mom told one of her friends, hey, we are non-smokers. If you'd like to smoke, please smoke outside. <gasps> that was such a big deal. Right? How dare you? This was so counterculture to ask yeah, someone to yeah. smoke outside in the 1980s. But that's what she did. She, my dad quit, had quit smoking. She never smoked. And she kind of took a stand and, and spread what's called social antibodies to protect from these unhealthy behaviors. And so that's what we're doing right now with technology. That's the whole point of my book, Indistractable. It's not to stop using technology per se. It's not like cigarettes where there's nothing good about cigarettes, right? There's really no benefit to smoking cigarettes. It's all bad. Technology, on the other hand, has so many goods. The goods way outweigh, are way more numerous than the bads. It's about how do we use it properly. So that's what we do. The first thing is we adopt these new norms around how we use a, a particular technology. And then we also adapt and we integrate new technologies to fix the last generation of technology. And this is a very big deal. So Paul Virilio, the philosopher, said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, right? But we, sh we sail more ships than ever today. When was the last time you heard about a shipwreck? Almost never. Why? Did we stop sailing ships? No, we made them better. We made them safer. And so every time that there's an industry that creates bads along with the goods, a new industry pops up to correct those bads. So technology isn't bad or good, right? Technology yeah. creates problems, always creates problems. The idea is not to get rid of the problems. It's to have better problems, right? Just like you said, our grandparents would look back and say, oh my gosh, my child's living in hell looking yep. at a screen. Yeah. But those problems are way better than the fact that yes. I don't have to fight a world war yep. and I don't have to starve to death. And I, I can go outside and the, the air in front of my place is much cleaner than it was in their generation living in an industrial hell hole. You know, so, so the problems that we have are still problems. They're just much better problems because of the technology that we have. Yeah. I, well, I think sometimes it's easy to think about technology is a ladder and a crutch. You, know, you are going to lose, right? I don't know how to navigate by the stars, Nier. I'm going to be very honest with you about that. But I do have a phone in my pocket and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm pretty nimble with it, frankly. I know how to leverage it. And I think 
given our circumstances, we do adapt. You bring up a really interesting point of social antibodies. I'll just put something in the ear of the listener, and we're going to move to the next question. I wonder, it makes me wonder, so Stephen Wolfram was on for a previous series and talked about, not on the podcast, in a different conversation, this idea that you seem to be countering, which I think is a valid counter, that there may come a time where AI suggestions, this idea, to your point, what is the next marketing test? What is the next sales call to make? What's the script to use on that call? What's the decision here, decision there? Personal life, food to eat, whatever. There's going to be this really symbiotic relationship in some way, shape, or form that at some point will almost want to let go of a little bit more volition because we will go, we will get along farther in work. We make more sales when we stop actually interrupting the machine and we do what it says. We earn our commission. We're going to keep our job. And the same thing with losing weight, the same thing with this, with that, and that there might be sort of a AGI might be birthed from sort of that kind of a transition. To your point, though, and I think the listeners should think about this, what are the antibodies that might come up? What are those smoking secession examples where people start engaging in an activity and other humans around them are like, we're not doing that. That's not going to be something we do here. That's not going to become a norm for us. There's a whole, I could just journal on that topic alone here. I think that's a fun one. Knowing, knowing what we have for time, though, I want to get into our next point. You had talked about, you know, if you think the world is distracted now, it certainly will be in the future. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We'll talk about tech for the indistractable side of stuff, but let's first get into where you see the hooking process of habit forming technologies occurring more and more. I think it's clear there are some that are better than others. You know, Duolingo being a little bit addictive is probably aggregately better than TikTok, especially given where the data goes, but it's going to start seeping into B2B, into all these other domains. What is this process going to look like moving forward? And maybe how does it tie to the core model that that you like to leverage for this? Yeah, let, let me just say one quick caveat Please. around that word that you used, addiction. Okay. <laughs> so this is this is a really important term that we should make sure we use appropriately because an addiction is not, oh, I like it a lot. An addiction is a pathology. And I think it's become kind of part of the vernacular of, ooh, this is really fun. It's addictive and I'm addicted and everybody's addicted. And that really, I think, takes emphasis off of the fact that this addiction is a disease, right? Addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So we never want to build addictive products. And we don't want to think that we are addicted unnecessarily. One, because I think it's disrespectful to people who actually have the disease. Two, it disempowers us because when we think, oh, I'm addicted, you know, the word addiction comes from the Latin addictio, which means slave. Okay. So the whole idea is to be enslaved by something, which in some circumstances, when you have the disease of addiction is true. But for the vast majority of people, we're not addicted, we're distracted. But we don't like to think in those terms because wait a minute, distraction, that means that I can do something about it. That's no fun. Can't I just blame Mark Zuckerberg for doing this? And yeah, I, yeah, I, just, yeah. I know that you, we, we're philosophically on the same page. Yes, I just are, wanted yeah. the, the audience to know that an addiction is very different from a habit. Okay, A habit is simply the impulse to do something with little or no conscious thought. And in that respect, we want things to be more habit-forming. We in, in business should make products that improve people's lives more habit-forming because the idea here is to help people do things that they themselves want to do, persuasion right? Persuasion rather than coercion. Coercion is unethical. Why? Because coercion is getting people to do something they did not want to do, something that they would later regret. That's unethical. Persuasion, however, is very ethical. Persuasion is helping people do things that they themselves want to do, but for lack of good product design, don't do. 
So what I think we're going to see is all these things that people wish for themselves, all the things that they want to do but don't, exercise more, eat right, be fully present with their loved ones, be more productive at work, new, learn a new language, get those sales calls done, all this stuff that people want to do but for lack of good product design don't do, that's where we're going to see more habit-forming applications be built and win. Got it. And, and we're going to get into some of those particulars there and how it's approached. A couple things to touch on. I think I think you're right to say, you know, thinking of a habit, I'm not necessarily addicted to brushing my teeth per se, but but it is a habit. And so using that word would be somewhat ridiculous. That's to say, now, even having a psychology background, I think the DSM is a kludge of hoopla, to be honest, a lot of it. I think it's a very, very, it's a very, it's a very tough ball game out there. Like I, I, that was one of the yeah. things that kind of spooked me from the field. However, mm. I think there is some credence to the element of legitimate addiction to something like, let's say, pornography or, sure. or, or other, and, kind, other kinds of media. Go ahead. Absolutely. And to TikTok and to drinking water. Yep. You know, oh, there are, there are recorded water, cases water of people getting addicted to drinking. Ask Anna Lepke. She wrote the book Dopamine Nation. She works at Stanford University. She's had clients, it's in her book, who are addicted to drinking too much water. Why, right? Water isn't inherently addictive, is it? Well, here's the thing. Addiction is never just about the thing. It's about the user as well yeah. as the thing that's being abused. And so, yes, 2 to 5% of the population is addicted to something or another, yeah. okay? But that leaves 95, 98% of the population, almost everybody who's listening to the show right now, who's not addicted. We're just distracted. So we need to be able to differentiate between those people, by the way, and I think that's where we do need regulation. I think, you know, I proposed this for, for over a decade now. I think companies need to have what's called a use and abuse policy. If you're the kind of company that has a significantly large number of people who are using your product, you need to recognize the fact that any analgesic is potentially addictive. I'll say it again, any analgesic, anything that solves pain, I don't care if it's Tylenol to methamphetamines, anything that solves pain, will addict someone if it's used by a sufficiently large number of people. This is what the medical literature tells us. But it's not everyone, right? Alcohol is highly, quote unquote, addictive. But is everybody who has a glass of wine, a dinner, an alcoholic? Of course not. It's the very small proportion of people who are alcoholics, right? The 1% to 5% of the population. And so technology is the same way. Yes, some people will get addicted, which is why we need a use and abuse policy. And this is something I really would like to see legislation passed around is to say, look, if you make the kind of product that can addict people, and if it's sufficiently large, it will, you need to have some kind of policy that says, if you use our product more than X number of hours a week, we're going to send you a very respectful message that says, hey, we are seeing that you are using our product in a way that may indicate you're struggling with an addiction. Can we help? Right? And if you say no, okay, hands off, right? We can't be big brother here. But if you are looking for resources, we're going to help you with that. Maybe we'll help you put yourself on a blacklist so you're not constantly checking Facebook or yeah. a, a sports gambling site or whatever the case might be. Now, this is not going to be a problem for enterprise software SaaS. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a problem. <laughs> but it, it is, you know, when we think about the, it, I think it's a very good way of, of encapsulating, you know, where we should be protected from ourselves, in which case, you know, if you're a child or if, uh, if you're someone who's struggling with pathological addiction, I think there is a case to be made for protection. But for everyone else, it's up to us. Yeah. I mean, I, I personal responsibility tends to be my bent writ large. I would lend some credence to some kinds of digital addiction without a doubt. But I think the majority of people that say such things, it's, it's likely not like a alcoholism and the same kind of real deep chemical sort of song and dance. In terms of your, your idea of this policy that companies should set in place, do you see this as something that 
for the most part, will have to be kind of potentially nudged and encouraged on the governance side. Or, you know, we see some companies, it looks to me sniffing around right now that some of the things TikTok is doing in America with, you know, younger age groups having time limits as they already did in China for somewhat obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. but would make, would make sense. They wouldn't have them here. I think the writing is on the wall and it's a bit preemptive. Do you think that a lot of companies will make this move to kind of proactively be seen as the good guy, or do you see the bulk of them kind of moving in this direction more from a, a regulatory nudge of some kind? Well, they've certainly started, and and you know I I've been talking to companies, I've had meetings with with all the big ones around this use and abuse policy, and my hope was that they would do so voluntarily, and none of them did. So this use and abuse policy, I think something should be something that comes from top down. Unfortunately, I'm not a big fan of, you know, the geniuses in in government regulating this stuff, they tend to be very ham fisted with it. But I think if the companies are not doing it themselves, there should be some kind of policy. By the way, as is the case with all sorts of potentially addictive products, unfortunately, you know, if someone is a news junkie, right, if you're watching five hours of, of Fox News all day or CNN or whatever the case, or, you know, that's also probably indicative of some kind of problem. You're also probably overusing. And I wish we could reach out to people who are using that much and saying, hey, you know what, maybe it's too much. How about, how about some resources that help you cut back? But of course, you know, we don't talk about old media because old media is boring, right? It's yeah, been around for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. It's only the new stuff that we have moral panics around. But to these companies' credit, the traditional media companies are doing absolutely nothing about this problem, right? The New York Times will never put up a banner that says, hey, you've been reading way too much news. Go spend time with your family. That's never happened, right? However, if you look at Apple and Google on your device, everybody's iPhone, everybody's Google device today has features that help you use the product less. Think about that. How many products can you name that have features built into them to help you use them less. There's Google Wellbeing, there's Apple Screen Time. I use it every day. I limit the time. I have a little timer that comes up if I use a particular app more than I want. It comes up and says, hey, your screen time limit has been set. These are built-in tools into your product. Everybody has them. We just need to use them. And so we have to give these companies credit. Now, why do they do that? Do they do that because of political pressure? Absolutely not. Do they do that because they're altruistic? You're dreaming. They did it because these type of features make the products better. It's the same exact reason why seatbelts started appearing in cars, not because of regulation. Seatbelts first appeared in motor vehicles 17 years before any regulation said that they had to. Why do they do it? Because guess what? People want to drive cars that keep them alive. And so that's exactly what's happening with our technology. And what will continue to have happen with the technology, back to this adopt and adapt methodology that I talked about earlier, there's a whole cottage industry now springing up of products that help us use our devices in a more healthful way. And so what Apple and Google did, they just copied those features and said, wow, lots of people are buying that screen time app on the app store. Let's just incorporate into the product automatically. Oh, lots of people are building, are buying this blue light app that that limits the blue light so you can sleep better. Okay, let's just put it into the OS. Now everybody gets it for free. That's going to continue happening. Ah, okay. Interesting. I do think that probably this force that you're articulating isn't as much of the discourse as maybe it should be. And this is leading us into our last question. But sometimes it is, you know, we would think, and again, I think we have a very similar view of human nature here. These companies are acting in their own self-interest, but that self-interest doesn't always involve the most rapacious hardcore land grab of attention at every second because probably there's a point where people push back and they use another platform because they're like this is a way that like i find that i haven't gotten my work done 
And like, I don't like iPhone anymore. I, I switched to Android because like Android actually gives me ways to make sure I'm doing the things I want to do. So this is yeah. actually part of the evolution of competition. It's not just rapacious right. grab of attention. It actually might be the promotion of things like you brought up well-being. You, you know, we're talking about right. productivity. Very interesting to consider that as part of the self-interest. Right. Go ahead. And the point here is I think, you know, many tech critics, they're very short-sighted and they think that companies just want to rape your attention as much as possible. The attention economy, they just want to take it all from you. And that's a very short-sighted view because, you know, just basic discounted cash flow, right? If you think about why a company is valued at what they're valued, they don't want you to use the product until you burn out, right? When a, when a person gets addicted to a product, even temporarily, what tends to happen is that they burn out, they stop using it. So think about when you were a kid and you played a video game a Way lot too much, and yeah. you beat the game and then you, you did it too much. You found, oh my God, I'm not doing my homework. I'm not doing my chores. My mom's yelling at me. Like all these bad things start happening, all these consequences and you ease up. And sometimes you stop it altogether. You know, people think about video games as being so addictive, but you know, who's still playing Pac-Man? You know, who, who's still playing Candy Crush or who's still playing Farmville? We burn out on these things. Games are a bad example of long-term engagement. What companies want, and that's why, by the way, they are studio models, right? If you think about gaming studios, they constantly have to crank out new, 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 new content because people play it for a while, then they get sick of it and they stop. So what these companies want, what these attention economy companies want is not for you to use a product all day, every day, and then stop using it, which is what will happen if it disrupts your life. They want you to use it for the rest of your life until you die. (laughs) Right. And the only way they can do that is to make a value exchange with you where you say, yeah, this is valuable. This is adding something to my life. And if you disagree with me, just look at all the backlash right now. The reason people have this backlash about technology being too addictive or too habit forming is because as rational people, we are waking up and saying, wait a minute, we need to adapt our practices so we can get the most out of these technologies. That's perfectly healthy. That's exactly what I said and predicted will continue to happen is that process of recalibrating. So I, I, I think that's, uh, you know, the company's vested interest is not to burn you out. They want you to use forever, but the only way they can do that is to create a healthy value exchange. Yeah, I, I think that is a force to consider the fact that Apple will bake in these blue light things or these use limiting things. I don't know if it stops what some might argue would be a borderline inevitable trajectory into really immersive VR all the time, but it may. I mean, it, it very well may. I couldn't. I couldn't say it doesn't. Final thing we'll we'll wrap on if we've got eight minutes or so for it would yeah. be some of the other forces on the technology side. And your second book talks a good deal on the behavior side. We're somewhat crunched on time. When you think about the tech components, maybe the uses of of AI and other virtual technologies to bend us towards doing what we want to do. Like you said, maybe watching football is what you want to do, and that's okay. Maybe really cranking your sales numbers is what you want to do. That's okay. What are the technological forces pulling us in terms of our own autonomy, promoting our what the heart appoints for us and keeping us in line with that? Yeah, so I can see a future where there is an agent, maybe some some kind of conversational interface that asks you ahead of time what your intentions are. So one of the techniques that I describe in Indistractable, which has been studied thousands of times in peer-reviewed journals, is called setting an implementation intention. This is the most effective time management technique ever studied. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look in the back of my book, there's 30 pages of citations to peer-reviewed studies. Basically, it's about saying in advance what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. 
So imagine there is a, a technology developed that asks you, hey, how do you want to spend your time tomorrow? Okay, let, you know, I've, I've pre-populated your calendar. I need you to make some decisions here around, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? Right. So this is a technique, by the way, that I tell people to do themselves. A lot of people don't do it because it takes some time. Well, I could see a future where a technology says, hey, I saw how you spent your time yesterday. Here's where you were living according to your values, but here's where you went off track. I'm going to adjust your schedule tomorrow to make it easier for you to follow so you can live out your values. I love this idea. I, I think, you know, of course, our intentions are somewhat vague and, and you know, if you've looked at that much psychological literature, you'll see that the ability for humans to predict what makes them happy is brutal. <laughs> it is, it's bad times. Right. However, however, I think you and I both on a practical level could say, hey, if I work three hours on my book, you know, tomorrow evening, I really will feel better. That really is good for me. There are levels of this that are accessible. And it sounds like maybe for you, do you see this more as a central AI or digital agent that would then manage your activity across apps? Do you see this living sometimes within particular apps? How might this manifest? Because I, I really like this idea. Yeah, I think, you know, to be seen, I, I'm so, I'd love to see these type of companies. I'd like to invest in these type of companies. You know, I, I'm an active angel investor as well. I, I could see this living in a bunch of different places. I mean, I've, I've seen several, you know, I get sent all kinds of different new products and services and gadgets. And so I, I could see this happening in a few different ways. Like, for example, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in terms of managing our time, I would say the, the biggest problem, especially when it comes with our technology, turns out, you know, that we've done studies where we know that only 10% of our distractions emanate from what's called external triggers, these pings, dings, and rings in our outside environment, 10%. Yeah. 90% of our distractions begin from within. These are uncomfortable emotional states, boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. So imagine if there was a technology, and this has always been the missing link, Imagine if there was a technology that preemptively could see that you're becoming bored, that you're becoming anxious, that you're becoming stressed, and knew that you were likely to get distracted, right? This is the hardest part about teaching people to become indistractable, is noticing those preceding sensations that lead us to distraction, that lead us to Facebook, that lead us to the cigarette, that lead us to, to cheat on our diet. If you can bring awareness to that. So for example, let's, let's give a very concrete example. I am certain that one day there will be a product that's you know, maybe the size of this button on my shirt that looks at what I'm about to eat. And before oh, I eat it, it calculates the nutritional content yeah, of that food. Wonderful. And so as opposed to me logging my food after I eat it, which is very difficult food to luck. get people to do, very, very high friction. Instead, this little device, you know, tells me, hey, that plate of food has 1,200 calories. If you remove those French fries, it's only 400 calories. And before you eat it, we just wanted you to know. Like if it could preemptively tell you information that changed your behavior, because right now most behavior change applications, they're all retrospective, right? Yep. They're lagging yep. indicators. Yep. The future will be a future filled with leading indicators. If you go to sleep right now, this will happen. If you eat this versus this, that's what's going to happen. Versus today, it's all lagging indicators. It already happened. It's too late. You know, it's nine o'clock at night. Your, your little... Fitbit says you've only walked 6,000 steps, but you need 10,000. Well, I can't do anything about it. It's too late. As opposed to in the future, it'll have a leading indicator to say, hey, do this now because this is going to be the result later. I, I can wrap up on, I guess, this concept and see if you want to add anything to this nutshelling, because I think this is really important for, for our audience to consider. There will be a very important art and science of discerning what is the genuine intention of this user. 
In other words, what is productive? What does boredom look like? What do these uncomfortable states look like that pr produce these kind of distractive effects? What do they care about for nutrition? Are they calcium deficient? You know, is this button also going to plug into your yeah. blood? I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe it'll connect to a Fitbit or something. Who, who knows? But it sounds as though there will need to be a lot of relatively accurate detection and potentially intake processes to sort of make sure, hey, you user, what are your genuine preferences, et cetera? And then to your point, to proactively manifest that. I think everybody, I mean, myself included, every day I've got ones and zeros in a box. Every week I've got ones and zeros in a box in terms of habits I'm trying to to come up with. I would love mm -hmm. to be prompted. Hey, Dan, time to get in that 30 minutes of reading before you go to bed. You know, we want to make sure that we finish that book on the time you said you would. Like, that would be great. So do you think yeah. that's about accurate? Like, there's going to be a, a development of this art and science of discerning intent. Absolutely. I mean, look, if we could turn indistractable, the methods in indistractable around number one, mastering your internal triggers, right? Understanding those emotional states, that has to be the first step. Then making time for traction, helping us stay on a schedule. Number three, hacking back the external triggers. That can certainly be done by a smart technology where, hey, if it's already being done, right? Apple with the latest iOS update has these focus modes where it will change your home screen based on what type of work you're trying to get done. If you're with your family, your phone looks a certain way. If you're doing work, your phone looks a certain way. Those are all kinds of ways that technology can enable us to hack back the external triggers. And then finally, preventing distraction with packs. Imagine if there's a technology that says, hey, Dan, you made your schedule for the day. If you achieve your schedule today, if you follow what you, you're said, you yourself said you were going to do according to your values, here's your schedule. If you do it today, we're not going to deduct money from your bank account. But for every time you go off track, we're going to deduct $50. Or, hey, let's raise the stakes. We're going to deduct $100. Love Are you going to do it? Of course you're going to do it. Not even close. You're definitely going to go for the workout. You're definitely yeah, going to yeah, read the yeah. book because it's what you said you were going to do. And if there's a financial disincentive, this is called a price pact, you know you're going to do it. We're just negotiating the price. So if technology can do that, now the big caveat, okay, technology can absolutely do everything I just described. Uh -huh. The caveat is, back to where we started the conversation, how do you make sure you don't elicit psychological reactants? Yeah. If the technology bosses you yep. around and tells yep. you what to do, even here's the crazy thing, even if it's you yourself who said <laughs> what you wanted to do, you're still going to elicit reactants. Yeah. In that moment, you're going to say, oh, fucking, I want to watch TV right now. Don't tell me what to do. That's going to be the big challenge is how can we help people live to their intentions when in the moment, you know, because because of hyperbolic discounting, right? We say, oh, I definitely want to work out later today or later this week or later this month. But right now, I don't feel like it. That's going to be the big challenge. Live to their intentions. And when you said packed, what I immediately thought of actually was personal accountability. Hey, Mir, if you answer those three emails that you have to get back to your tax people about, then we won't you know, notify your friends that you missed your goal again, because you told them on Monday, you would get it done. And so like, that would get me to do things too. Like, hey, this will get kicked out to your five best friends that are in a pact. You know, it sure. feels like another kind of pact. Or even one person. Imagine there's, you know, I, I think this is a concept that I'd love to see more of is an AI enabled accountability coach. Okay, so oh, yeah. maybe Dan is the accountability coach for today, you can't really handle too many clients, right? You just don't have the time. But imagine if there was an AI that had a chat GPT capabilities of a prompt to tell you basically with one button what to send someone. You could go from handling five clients as, a, as an accountability coach to 500 clients. 
And yeah, most of the, your response would be generated by an AI, but to the person, if you were coaching me and keeping me accountable, you know, seeing your face, Dan saying, Hey, did you work out today? I expected you to, did you do it? Even if the message was generated by an AI, it came from you, Dan, a real human being with a real face. And that of course, through this social cohesion argument that we all have, we all want to, you know, do what we think our friends expect yes, us to do, yes, yes. that can help people make sure they, they fulfill their objectives. Well, for anybody who's tuned in and wants a shot at an angel investment from the man himself, it sounds like you've got a business model to chase down before you hit him with that cold email. I certainly want to see this company come to life near, so I'm hoping you throw some dollars down on whoever brings that to bear. Lots of great ideas for people to consider. And frankly, I think a lot of optimism away from what people consider to be the dystopic automatic pull of technology. Nero, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dan. So that's all for this second episode of this five-part Thursday series on AI futures. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I got to meet Nir once very briefly in San Francisco when I lived out there for three years at a business event. It's fun to be able to loop him back in now that he's got another book. I would recommend that you check out Hooked. His first book is extremely popular. His newer book is called Indistractable. I bought a copy before I actually interviewed him for this series to have some notes on the kind of topics I wanted to unpack. And hopefully that unpacking was productive for all of you. We have a lot more to unpack. And in our next episode of this Thursday series, we speak with an expert on a very important topic, and that is controlling or influencing our emotional experiences through immersive virtual reality. How do we not only get relaxed or be entertained in VR, but how do we conjure a VR experience that will make us feel more confident, more able to achieve our business goals, or other more nuanced self-beliefs? There's all kinds of interesting burgeoning research around VR for influencing emotion. Some of it could be used for good and for ill. And if you want to know more about that cutting edge, then you're not going to want to miss our next episode where we speak with an expert on exactly that topic, the influencing of emotion in immersive VR. We've had some great comments on LinkedIn throughout this series. You can find me just Daniel Fagella. That's F-A-G-G-E-L-L-A on LinkedIn. I've posted about all of our interviews as they've gone live in this series, as well as our reward system article. We've got some really interesting thoughts up there. If you haven't read the full article, you can see Nier's quotes, as well as the quotes from our first guest, who is the head of data at the United Nations, at emerj.com slash reward, R-E-W-A-R-D, emerj.com slash reward. If you want to know the big picture of sort of where we see the dots starting to connect in terms of the risks and opportunities for generative AI, check that article out, emerj.com slash reward. Otherwise, stay tuned. Next Tuesday, we're getting back into AI use cases and trends, as always. And next Thursday, we're going to talk a little bit more about modulating our emotions in future virtual worlds. Stay tuned.